Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, the podcast channel in the New Books Network that features interviews with philosophers about their new ideas as expressed in their newly published books. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. Today's podcast features a book about disgusting art, that is, art that deliberately aims to cause disgust. Aesthetic judgments regarding the value, or not, of artworks have historically been tied to the notion of beauty. What is valuable in art is what is in some sense beautiful. But much great art is not beautiful or even pleasurable to experience. In fact, it may specifically aim to cause responses that are anything but feelings of pleasure or experiences of beauty. A really good horror movie is one that frightens us out of our wits, and a really good murder mystery is one that is puzzling to the very end. Tragedies are supposed to make us feel pity and sorrow, and when they don't, they are aesthetic failures. So there are plenty of works of art and genres of art that succeed only when they cause non-pleasurable responses. The aesthetic value of these kinds of art raises a couple of philosophical puzzles. One is the paradox of fiction. How is it that things that we know are not real can cause emotional responses as if they were real? Why do we experience the adrenaline rush and the racing pulse of fear when we know very well that Hannibal Lecter is just a character on the screen? One famous response to this puzzle is the claim that we don't really feel fear at all, just something that is like real fear in some ways. Of course, this sort of answer presupposes a definition of real fear. You don't get to say that our response to a horror film isn't real fear unless you have a theory of fear, or even better, of the emotions quite generally. And a second puzzle is the paradox of aversion. How can an aversive experience be aesthetically valuable? How can something that repels also be aesthetically attractive? These paradoxes arise in spades when it comes to the emotion of disgust. Disgust is characterized by nausea, queasiness, and a general feeling of discomfort, of, well, disgust. Crawling maggots are disgusting, rotting flesh is disgusting, the eating of human flesh is disgusting. Moreover, the physiological responses we have to disgusting things are automatic, like our fear responses. So the paradoxes of fiction and aversion are acute when it comes to art that aims to cause disgust by using disgusting images, and it's mostly images rather than tastes or smells, as a means to a kind of aesthetic experience, an experience that might be called, appropriately enough, aesthetic disgust. Today's podcast is an interview with Carolyn Korsmeyer, professor of philosophy at the University at Buffalo State University of New York. Professor Korsmeyer's new book is Savoring Disgust, The Foul and the Fair in Aesthetics, 
from Oxford. In her book and in our interview, Professor Korsmeyer discusses the nature of disgust as an emotion, the aesthetic allure of the disgusting, and the kind of aesthetic experience that we get in disgusting art. Do we really feel disgust when we confront this art, or must our disgust be denatured in some way before we can regard the object aesthetically? How can the disgusting also be attractive? What does disgust add to aesthetic experience that other emotional responses don't give us? Let's bring Carolyn Korsmeyer on the line to find out. I'm here with Carolyn Korsmeyer, Professor of Philosophy at the University at Buffalo, State University of New York. Hello, Carolyn. Hello. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Um, today we're discussing your new book, Savoring Disgust, The Foul and the Fair in Aesthetics. Um, so I guess, uh, well, before we begin, maybe you want to say a word about your interest in, in disgust uh, as an aesthetic uh, experience. Okay. Well, it's been along an indirect route. The main area of research that I've conducted in philosophy for most of my career is in the field of aesthetics and philosophy of art. And um, in the late 90s, I became interested in the area of aesthetics that is typically omitted from traditional theories, and that is literal taste. As you might know, uh, modern theories of aesthetics begin as philosophies of taste, but they typically uh, stipulate that aesthetic taste doesn't have to do with eating. In other words, eating and smelling and so forth produce sensuous pleasures but not aesthetic pleasures. And after repeating that commonplace for a long time, I got curious about why food and drink are so traditionally omitted from the field of aesthetics and, and taste. In other words, why literal taste um, got left out of aesthetic taste. So that prompted me to write a book that was published a long time ago, 1999, called Making Sense of Taste, Food and Philosophy. And in the course of that study, I got interested in what appears to be the opposite of taste, the opposite of good taste, the opposite of taste pleasure, namely disgust. So that led me to think about disgusting foods, disgust in art, and disgust as it's exploited purposively and positively by artists in order to make a point. Um, in other words, I'm not interested in the disgust response that leads you just to walk out of a movie or close a book or turn away from something. That's just rejection. It's not any form of appreciation. But there is lots of art that deliberately evokes some version of a disgust response in the audience and when it does so successfully, that arousal of emotion contributes to the understanding of the meaning of the work and to the general appreciation of it. Sometimes it is even describable as a pleasure, although I, I don't really think it often is. It's, it's, sometimes, it's often very disturbing. But that's my crooked path to studying disgust as an aesthetic response. And... So maybe we should start with the nature of disgust, you know, the disgust response. Um, 
there are various theories of the emotions, and uh, you canvass uh, some of the major ones um, in your early in the book. Uh, so maybe you might uh, tell us what what you consider disgust to be, as or what you dis- what you consider emotions, perhaps in general, to be, and how disgust um, is a particular case of the g- more general theory of emotion. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, um, disgust figures among the so-called basic emotions that psychologists have identified. If there are such things as basic emotions, they include such things as fear, anger, surprise, joy, uh, and disgust, and several others. It's a somewhat contentious category. Um, And a lot of those emotions are particularly notable for the fact that they have um, marked physical responses and standard display characteristics in the face, in the gesture, sometimes in the bodily posture. And uh, now, how does disgust line up with other emotions? It doesn't sound very subtle uh, if you just list them among the basic emotions. And one of my goals in this study was to try to draw out ways in which what at first glance appears to be a merely somatic recoil has got much more subtle varieties. Now, how does it fit in terms of general emotions? Philosophers these days are somewhat divided among themselves on where to situate the physical responses of emotions. For example, are the physical responses such as drawing back from something in fear or moving towards something in anger, are these effects of a mental event that should be identified as the emotion? Are they triggers to an emotional state? Or are they to be identified with the emotion itself? Is an emotion intrinsically a physical response? And I think the cogency of uh, theory actually varies a bit depending on what kind of emotion one has in mind. Um, Most philosophers, myself included these days, favor a kind of combination position that incorporates both thoughts about intentional objects and physical conditions and, and responses as constituents of any given emotion. Um, and again, that's going to vary a bit depending if one is talking about disgust or um, nostalgia or regret. Uh, some of these emotions have far less of a notable sensory component. But disgust um, is highly sensory. In fact, um, most theorists believe that it requires a kind of sensory stimulus, often taste or smell, or the imagination, the imaginative description of a sensory experience. And this is something that I tend to stress in this study because um, disgust, I believe, believe, is a profoundly somatic emotion. In its extreme forms, it's manifest as nausea, sometimes actual vomiting, hopefully not in the case of aesthetic disgust, but it's possible. So for this particular emotion, I do stress the visceral aspects of it and the fact that they that, that it's um, a bodily response as well as 
one that is highly cognitive. In other words, that picks out important properties of the objects that, that it's responding to. So um, for this emotion, I do stress these visceral aspects, but I also would like to say that with as with any emotion, they are more than merely sensations. They have... Um, Intentionality, that is to say, they are directed to the particular object that typically prompts them. Um, another philosopher of the emotions, Peter Goldie, refers to the intentionality of physical sensations of emotions as borrowed intentionality, which is not a bad term because often we think of intentionality as, as a mental phenomenon. But to give an example, if one is um, engaged with a, a narrative and something grisly happens and you find yourself mildly nauseated by it. That feeling, um, which is a variety of disgust, isn't just a sensation in your own insides. It's also about something. It's about the, the, the episode of the narrative that's, um, that you're experiencing. Um, so the queasy feeling, if you will, that signals disgust is about the object that is disgusting. It, it is very definitely um, meaning conveying. Uh, so in this way, being disgusted at an event, at an object, at a work of art, would be distinct from, say, having the flu. Uh, if you're just sick, the queasiness you might experience is an unpleasant sensation that is about little other than itself in the state of being being sick and feeling awful. But if you find disgust aroused as part of a full encounter with a work of art, then that disgust is um, a complex part of your response to it, and it often is a, a way to register something of the meaning of the work. So and that's the kind of disgust, by the way, that I call aesthetic disgust for shorthand. Okay. Um, so, I mean, one of the distinctions that you do make is between, say, metaphorical disgust, where we call something dis- disgusting, but we're not having any somatic, queasy experience of any sort. Um, uh, but also, I mean, there you also uh, defend the idea that disgust, there are many varieties of disgust. Um, and so I guess um, the question that I would ask is um, when can you tell when there, I mean, we know when we're really feeling disgust. I mean, there there are certain things that are, you know, absolutely disgusting and there's no question about what one would feel and um, and what emotion we are identifying when we call it disgust. Um, but in other cases, there seem to be Responses that you might want to call disgust in which there is either no strong queasy feeling or perhaps no queasy feeling at all. And in those cases, which are more subtle, um, how, do you, how do you know when you're feeling disgust as opposed to some other sort of emotion? Yeah, something that where you might use the term disgusting, but it's essentially metaphorical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or you don't know if it's metaphorical, or, or it's just a more subtle case yeah. of disgust. I, I think that's a really good question, and um, 
I can talk around the question, but uh, but but I actually think there's a strong zone of indeterminacy there that it, on which some important questions hinge. Um, right. Although it isn't in the forefront of discussion at the moment, I think that a lot hangs on the answer, including whether so-called moral disgust really has a source in emotional response or is a profound way of expressing disapproval. And the reason I think that's an important and very difficult question is um, both philosophers and psychologists now seem, many, I should say, seem to be open to the idea that disgust provides us with a kind of basic moral sense, that if something is disgusting, it must therefore be morally bad. Um, And there are certainly morally weighted situations that legitimately arouse disgust, uh, as you said before, that are absolutely clear, such as torture, that sort of thing. But there are other kinds of, of moral situations where it seems as though the disgust is so weighted with social value that it it is actually changeable and therefore you would be inclined to think that the behavior that's being responded to isn't intrinsically disgusting it's just at the moment not approved this isn't an original point on my part this is a point that that martha nussbaum has argued extensively in her uh, book hiding from humanity where she makes the case that as a moral emotion disgust is highly dangerous um, and unreliable. Um, but one of the reasons that I tend to, to avoid discussing moral disgust in the book, although I do consider certain situations where it would qualify, is that I am especially interested in the oddity of disgust as an appreciative response, as opposed to condemnation. Um, but I got to grant you that there's there's an area here where I think it's really indeterminate whether you have a genuine case of a basic response or a metaphorical use of a very strong negative language because the term disgusting is strongly negative, um, or if you have something in between where social norms invade basic reactions and impose a kind of projection of disgust onto subjects that might not, on reflection, bear that description. What what I think is impossible is simply introspecting on our feelings to make that judgment. They're just not um, that good grounds of, of for evidence. So, um, how do we distinguish? By and large, as a kind of rough-and-ready guide, I follow the scientific literature on the subject, which some of which talks about moral disgust, but most of which that I have read locates core or visceral disgust in objects that literally sicken or contaminate, such as um, decaying bodies, infected sores, that sort of thing. Um, the uh, And the idea here, again, is that... Um, I'm following through on the idea that emotions are designed to register qualities of objects that without the emotions we are actually um, blind to certain qualities and objects and therefore 
I tried to limit myself to cases where arguably the emotion was an indispensable way of grasping the meaning of something. So let's let me um, get to one issue that directly bears on the question of you know what counts as real disgust as opposed to metaphorical disgust or just you know condemnation of some sort, and that's that's the question of uh, the so-called paradox of fiction, right? Where um, as you put it, the puzzle of why and how things that we know aren't real prompt responses in us um, as if we believe them to be real. Real, So, you know, horror movies are, of course, a paradigm example where uh, we respond to the creature coming at us in that 3D screen as if they were really going to eat us up. But we also, at the same time, know that they aren't going to eat us up. And so this raises the question of, well, if we know that they're really not going to attack us, um, and yet it's part of what it is to be fear to believe that something really is about to attack you, then is what we're feeling really fear? Or is it, you know, quasi-fear or something else? Um, And so the question, the same question obviously is going to be arise with cases of of disgust. Um, if a work of art uh, is presenting to us something, you know, something that perhaps looks like viscera, but we know it's not viscera, and uh, in the absence, say, of uh, some strong nausea, uh, is what we're feeling genuine disgust, or is it perhaps some sort of quasi-disgust? Yeah. I'd like to um, situate that set of questions um, in in the deep context of aesthetic theory because the question of whether this is genuine disgust or some other genuine emotion such as fear in horror movies um, and if it is genuine, how is it that such a negative feeling becomes appreciatable? These are very complicated issues that are tangled up in the history of aesthetics. Um, one of the chapters of this book, Savoring Disgust, addresses what was the traditional exclusion of disgust from the emotions that can be aroused by art that is beautiful or aesthetically satisfying. Um, As you might know, in the um, very rich period of the 18th century, when so much aesthetic theory was being developed, disgust was unique. It was among the emotions because it's the only one that, according to a large body of theory, uh, was completely disqualified from having positive aesthetic status. And there were a number of reasons that were advanced to justify the exclusion of disgust from good art. Um, For one thing, it was considered to be just an unworthy emotion because the objects that trigger disgust, such as mm, rotting corpses, are are just base and low and therefore an unfit subject for art. That's a reason that we might consider to be a little antique, but it was certainly a strong one. Secondly, and this I think is a really interesting feature of this particular emotion, it was observed, and I'm speaking of 
theorists such as Kant or Moses Mendelssohn or Lessing, that disgust does not seem to distinguish between what is real and what is represented. So disgust alone transfers the nauseating in the natural world or or in the real world to the nauseating in art with no softening of, of effect. I'll come back to the point in a minute. And the third reason, a third reason, um, that disgust was omitted from good art by the lights of this theory was the idea that if something that is disgusting in nature does manage to be rendered well by an artist in a painting or in a, a, a narrative that is vividly described, then it ceases to be disgusting but achieves the status of something like the grotesque or maybe the tragic. So, um, in that case, the representation was skillfully mute the disgusting and transform it into something more worthy. Okay, that's the, the traditional view. Now, I think some of that traditional view is very insightful, and some of it is a little misguided. Um, first of all, because, as I mentioned before, I think that disgust is capable of registering viscerally some profound truths about life and death and mortality and material vulnerability. I don't want to read it out of the aesthetic menu of emotions that have um, positive and appreciative versions. I think that would be a loss. I also think it would be untrue to the value that we place on certain kinds of art. But Interestingly enough, the point about the lack of distinction between a disgusting thing in in real life and a representation of the disgusting thing, I think is pretty insightful um, because disgust does seem to be genuinely aroused by a picture or a description, just as if it were the real thing, with one important exception. It's a very important exception, and that is that most art doesn't make use of the primary disgust senses, that is to say, smell and taste. Some art does, particularly contemporary art is experimenting with this. But traditional art forms, um, literature, um, painting, and so forth, they... um, appeal to the eye or to the imagination or to the ear in oral works rather than actually um, stinking. The description of the stench is enough. Uh, so, so that does afford us a little bit of distance, as it were. But um, the fact that disgusting things are rendered in a way that makes you recoil, just as it, were, it was in nature, um, lends disgust a power that I think can be an aesthetic advantage that this emotion particularly has. Now, you mentioned its comparison with fear, which is is a very good comparison because fear and disgust very frequently come together in um, narrative fiction, for example. Um, But usually, if we're at the movies or reading a book or listening to a story, we know that we're not in danger. So while our, our pulse may become very rapid, and our blood pressure go up if we're terrified, we also know that we're not, as it were, really afraid. But in the case of disgust, it seems to me we still are really disgusted. And um, so being disgusted in the movie still is a brand of disgust. And so I think the tradition 
that singles out disgust as being rather unusual among the emotions that art can arouse. I think it's got some cogency, but I would turn it around and say that when skillfully used, often in much more subtle forms, then this is an advantage to the the, the um, kind of the gut response that one gets when disgust has a, a role in in a story. So I think you call this the transparency of disgust. Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Um, By that I meant that you sort of, the screen of representation is much more fragile, or it's got a lot of holes in it when it comes to art, compared to, oh, sorrow, for example, or grief, uh, which are also very strong, terrible emotions. But if they are aroused by a fiction, you're pretty sure you can blow your nose and close the book and not be affected any further. One of the... um you, you spend a chapter talking about about food and about the transformation of foods that are disgusting to objects of delight. Um, and um, this sort of raises the question of whether in some sense um, the disgusting has to be transformed in some way to become an object of aesthetic experience. And um, if in this, if this counts as, if this sort of desensitization to uh, disgusting things um, somehow makes it the case that in order to experience something aesthetically that is disgusting in some sense we have to stop considering it disgusting well the case of food is a little different from other aesthetic contexts i believe uh the reason that i the, the food chapter, incidentally, was the first one that I wrote because it's the one that most aptly followed from the earlier work on uh, the sense of taste in food that I mentioned before. And the reason that I um, explored the disgusting in food is that it, uh, I wanted to, to challenge the idea that, the, that disgust in food simply operates as an opposite, as a negative it either tastes good or it's disgusting. And the, the case I make in that particular part of the book is that there's actually a very high um, degree of foods that we learn to eat and that we start to consider delicious that um, begin in disgusting categories. Um, that is to say, food that is a little bit rotten is something. Or the, the category of the rotten is a standard disgust elicitor. But learning to eat food, say high meat, meat that has been um, aged to a point where it's it's getting pretty stinky before it's cooked, um, that is a highly developed taste, a highly developed um, uh, preference. Um, and in in the cases of of food, I believe we do need to. Um, I don't know if desensitization is the right term. It's more learning to expand our palates 
so that we come to like things that have a depth of flavor that sometimes, say, rotting something or maturing a cheese will, um, will permit. <clears throat> and I think, therefore, with food, you really do have a case where if the food is appreciated, and obviously not everyone is going to indulge in the same um, cuisines, but if the food is appreciated, it does need to be to become something that one finds flavorful and good. Although sometimes there's a hint of the revolting that remains in it. An example that I think is interesting that I myself wouldn't eat is kidneys, because kidneys supposedly uh, should be prepared in such a way that one can still catch a whiff of the urine that they purified. Um, so in that case, the discussed, the discussed origin, namely being, being a bodily organ whose uh, job it is to deal with waste, it, it's supposed to still be in the well-prepared kidney. Um, so you're not really just leaving disgust behind. Rather, you're incorporating it into a depth of flavor and sometimes a depth of meaning um, with, with foods. Um, but it, in order for it to be edible, and certainly in order for it to be enjoyed, it needs to reverse the valence from unpleasant to pleasant, or from um, something that you would re- find revolting to something that you find appealing. Does this happen with art? Well, maybe sometimes. But I think what's interesting with art, and here again, we're not dealing with things that we actually ingest, so you don't have to deal with the fact that you could poison yourself if you're not careful. When you're dealing with something that you look at or hear about or participate in, as with a participatory work of art, or read, um, the extremes of disgust that one can countenance are much broader and um, and I think it's important that they remain disgusting, but that the uh, the response is not so much recoil as it is appreciation. And again, the, what what basically lies behind that claim is the idea that without a disgust response, you're missing something. You're missing something about the nature of the work. Um, to give an example. Um, well, one of the works that I think is so interesting that I discuss in this book is a famous painting by Caravaggio called The Doubting of St. Thomas, which features um, the resurrected Christ and Thomas, the apostle, is poking his fingers into the spear wound on the side. Um, in order to be sure that this is, in fact, uh, the the resurrected uh, Christ. And when I first saw the picture, which was many years ago, I was absolutely revolted by it. I couldn't, but also fascinated by it, because I just couldn't um, countenance the idea of, uh, of that bodily violation. But, in fact, the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me that it was a really interesting and effective use of that visceral response to convey a meaning, uh, and a, a meaning about um, 
um, in that case, it's got a, a religious meaning attached to it. But it has to do with a combination of the body and of transcendence and so forth. And I think without that basic somatic response, which remains even when one appreciates the work, or I believe should remain, the work would lose some power. And I think that there are many, many cases where the disgust response is its very subtle and it mixes with many, many other responses. By itself, it's not so interesting. But when it mingles with these other responses, it adds a depth to them that is wholly positive, but it doesn't lose its visceral character. Well, there's an interesting aspect of the use of disgust um, in art that you mentioned um, was the fact that very often the smell and taste aspects um, are not included. And so there's a sense in which the use of the disgusting in art is very sharply circumscribed in a way that others not are not. And, and maybe that's a reflection of the fact that it is so strongly visceral. And so let me just, you know, give you an example. Um, cannibalism is not just sort of morally, um, you know, off limits, but, uh, just the very idea of eating human flesh um, is among the disgusting things. And yet one might think that, well, if we're going to explore the, the, the disgusting in art and in aesthetics, um, that um, cannibalism, you know, in the right artistic context would sort of be the ultimate um, aesthetic experience. And yet this is not what, at least until now, um, you see in, for example, in performance art where where people will smear feces looking, you know, things on themselves or um, use urine in particular ways um, or other, um, you know, bodily fluids. but the idea of actually, either actually or pretending to eat human flesh is, is still strongly taboo. And I just wonder, is, um, is the use of the disgusting in art um, still very, very strongly circumscribed in ways that um, other emotional responses uh, in art are not? Well, I think that um, if you if you focus on any single emotion, you might discover that each of them has got its limits if you take it by itself. Uh, I want to come back to the example of cannibalism in a moment, but let's diverge um, momentarily and think about grief. Grief is a profound emotion, and... Um, It's a terrible one to experience, and it certainly is an important one that figures in a lot of works of art. But if a work of art really just aroused terrible grief, it would not be something that I think we, we could tolerate. So in that respect, that strong emotion would also have an aesthetic limit. But I'm not really sure it's in the limit, a limit that's terribly significant with regard to the use of emotions. Rather, it indicates that works of art um, are 
you know, very, very fine works of art are typically very complex. And so they're going to be involving more than one emotion. And the way the emotions play off against one another, not to mention their their form and design and all of the other elements that go into making something a work of art. Um, but I think if you take any single emotion or emotion group and uh, try and make it by itself the purpose of a work of art, you, pretty, you are probably going to run into some limits, including the limit of boredom sometimes. But let me get back to, to cannibalism. Um, because one one does need to bear in mind that the so-called aesthetic experience, they are not always pleasant or pretty because they can be tragic and horrid and ugly, profound, grotesque, and so forth. And disgust is usually, although it's sometimes funny, it, it usually figures in the, in the more difficult works of art. And the consumption of human flesh is horrific, whether it's in a real or an artistic context, even though sometimes it, it's got morbidly funny aspects. But it's used in many stories to demonstrate inhumanity and cruelty in ways that I think other, um, other themes uh, would fail to do. And in a few of those stories, it has a weirdly intimate quality. Let me just mention some of the stories that, that I find so interesting that I do discuss in the book. Uh, there are some tales from Boccaccio's Decameron where women are deceived into eating the heart of a lover, which is a terrible thing for them and for the reader. I mean, it's part of the story, so it's, it's a good aspect of the story. But in terms of the, um, of the action that's being portrayed, it's really quite horrific. Um, but the impact of those tales ride on the utter taboo of eating another person and the horror of being the instrument of destruction of a loved one is a painful, but it's also a very compelling narrative device. Um, another example would be the horrific scene at the final section of the movie, The Cook, the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which is a, a, a scene of cannibalism, reluctant cannibalism, um, which is macabre and slightly funny. It's just ghastly. You could hardly bear to look at it. Um, but it certainly contributes to the quality of the whole work. And both, I think, are good examples of the operation of aesthetic disgust, even though they are hugely different. And in the, the latter case, the movie, it's not very subtle. In the, in the case of Boccaccio's stories, the queasiness that I think is prompted when one reads those stories is really quite quite subdued and subtle, but it also sticks with you. So, does this mean that disgust is limited? It does have some limits. But I would question whether the limits are greater in scope than other strong emotions, including terror or, you know, some emotions that are very strong are rather hard to imagine, really well exploited in art, anger perhaps being one. Uh, one does feel anger in the course of certain narratives, and sometimes it has a social or political purpose. But um, I would submit it might have as many or even more built-in aesthetic limits uh, compared to disgust. But um, one would have to explore different emotions and try and get a gauge of what would count as the scope of aesthetic exploitability. And artists are 
um, really quite deft at um, pushing our, what we think are our limits and, and making them expand further than we ever thought they could. So when an artist employs disgust inter alia among other um, features uh, or other, when they have a work that, in which they seek to uh, prompt disgust along with other emotions, um, what is the nature of what you call aesthetic disgust? Um, not just disgust caused by a work of art, but the um, the particular kind of aesthetic experience that disgust prompts. I'm not sure I would want to generalize about that because works of art differ so much. And in certain cases, the arousal of disgust might be comic, in which case it would have a certain kind of valence that's more amusing than horrid. In other cases, it might be very fearful, and that would give it uh, a tinge of a different sort. Um, in the Boccaccio stories, as I say, there's a, there's a very poignant intimacy to the discovery that um, one has eaten the heart of a lover. Uh, what I think is co- perhaps common among those different aesthetic qualities, although I, I want to be cautious about this because I think um, each particular work um, has an aspect of uniqueness that, that one shouldn't je- try to overgeneralize about. But what is often common to the arousal of disgust is that it does give you a kind of intimacy with the work. Uh, by intimacy, I mean you... you you feel it viscerally. Um, even although when it's funny, you might not experience that quite so closely as it is when it's sorrowful or um, or when it brings elements of mortality to mind. Because I think that the common denominator that I particularly value myself in art that arouses disgust in its more subtle forms especially, is a value that it's a way to grasp something that we know about all the time, but that's extremely hard really to wrap your mind around, and that is mortality. We we know we're mortal, but we don't, it's, it's not a very pleasant thought, but it's also very hard really to grasp. And I think that disgust in skillful hands is a means by which we sort of come face-to-face with that. And perhaps that would be um, an indispensable role that aesthetic disgust can play with certain works of art. But I should emphasize, I don't want to say it's always playing that role, Um, and sometimes it's just exploited for its own effect. Well, um, I mean, the discussion, as you you point out, is... is quite often associated with uh, decay, not just, you know, death as such, but um, the decay of flesh, the, you know, that maggots and um, worms and, you know, flesh and wounds and smells and, uh, you know, other sorts of bodily liquids and things of that nature. Um, So calling our attention in a work of art to those particular aspects of 
mortality. Um, could you explain a bit about more about how that uh, becomes part of aesthetic experiences of art? Because it can be part of the meaning of the work. Um, I, I, uh, I take a view that the, an important thing about the nature of an aesthetic response is that it's a kind of cognition. Um, it's a kind of cognition that you get by various means, uh, sensory, imaginative, and emotional. It's, and I call it cognitive because I think that's what gives art its a particular force and its particular meaning. It's what gives the aesthetic its, its importance. It's more than just looking a particular way or sounding a particular way. Um, and emotions, when they're aroused by art, are major contributors to that aesthetic cognition. So um, you also coin a term, the sublate, um, and draw a parallel between that, um, that sort of response and what is called the sublime. Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps... Uh, tell us a bit about what you mean by that particular um, aesthetic concept. Yeah. Um, yes, the, the concept of the sublime, which of course is quite familiar, is um, an idea of a powerful aesthetic emotion that has a foundation that is related to another deeply unpleasant emotion, namely terror. And uh, with the sublime, however, the terror is actually transmuted or transmogrified or converted in some way to a positive experience that may still have some roots in fear or terror, but is, it becomes a kind of transcendent experience of the powerful, the magnificent, maybe the divine. And with the sublate, I tried to tease out a parallel with disgust as the foundation. Um, and with this term sublate, I was trying to get with a general term at the ability of certain experience of disgust, by no means all, but certain experiences of disgust, to transform this emotion into a kind of, what we might consider a kind of existential insight about mortality and material decay. It isn't nearly as elevated as the sublime. In fact, you could say it's sort of the reverse direction. But it can carry with it a sort of resignation and acceptance and acknowledgement of mortality. Um, just as the, as the sublime delivers immediate impact and becomes its own emotion, the idea of the sublate is a similar, similarly immediate and visceral grasp of mortality, bodily vulnerability, and so forth. At that point, we may not be inclined to call it disgust, just as we're not inclined to call the sublime fear. But we recognize the traces of the foundational emotion in the experience. So is, is the sublate... Um a, a sort of a standalone kind of experience, or is it one that necessarily or typically uh, is one that 
accompanies other sorts of uh, aesthetic experiences. So, for example, um, if you have a a horror movie um, and you add to it uh, some disgusting, you know, scenes. Uh, you may enhance or deepen the aesthetic experience uh, by adding the disgusting aspects. Um, but just pure disgust on its own might not, um, you know, might not have any kind of, you know, deep aesthetic experience at all. And, and similarly with, with comedy, um, you may have some sort of a, a, a comic situation and then you add to it maybe some particular, some disgusting aspect in order to, you know, make it funny or change the tenor of the of the joke. Um, and so, is is the disgusting or the sublate? Um, is this the sort of thing that you might aim for um, on its own, or is it always something that is sort of uh, enhancing? other sorts of um, aesthetic responses? Well, I think that as a rule, one doesn't tend to experience emotions singly, especially in complicated works of art, because um, they usually come bundled up with either companion emotions such as disgust and fear, or in the case of comedy, disgust and amusement, or disgust and um, just rejection and and disapproval. Um, So I would say in most cases you probably do have a combination of of, of, of affects as well as of effects. The same is probably true with the sublime. Um, It's more than just horror. It also has to do with recognition of the nature of the object that is prompting the horror, uh, or I mean the terror. So um, I'm I'm not sure if you're wondering if what I'm saying, about if if disgust is more apt than other emotions to need need deeper context with other emotions or not, I'm not sure. Uh, Again, I think it would depend on the particular work of art one has in mind. There are certain works of art that appear only to desire to disgust. And my own view is they're not terribly interesting. Um, Stephen King has the expression, the gross-out, which is, in his own uh, words, the, the sort of desperation move he makes when he can't manage to horrify or terrify. And there is some art that is just perhaps aimed at a gross-out, um, and maybe it's a, and by the way, I think television and movies do that marvelously with special effects. And if it becomes its own end, I think it's pretty limited. But at that point, I don't think we're dealing with the profundity that disgust achieves when it's um, when it appears as part of a more complicated response and appreciation. Okay, I think we're we're close to running out of time. Um, so. Uh, let me just explore the relationship between aesthetic disgust um, and beauty, right? I mean, uh, aesthetic judgment has been historically uh, connected with judgments of beauty, um, and yet the disgusting, of course, is is often thought to be antithetical to 
to the nature of beauty. Um, so I wonder if you could um, uh, say a bit about how you see the relationship between um, disgust and beauty, um, and also pleasure as well. Well, that is um, one of the most difficult questions that I try to address in the book. Um, for most of the, with most of the kinds of art that I have in mind, I'm not sure that beauty and disgust necessarily are part of the same discussion because art is more than beautiful. It can be, um, uh, you know, strenuous, taxing, tragic, and sometimes it's also beautiful. I do try to make a case that with certain kinds of, of art, the disgust contributes to beauty. But um, at that point, I'm probing the edges of uh, aesthetic disgust. And I think much of the time, the disgust actually halts the uh, kind of positive response that we are inclined to call beautiful. There are some maybe exceptions. An exception that I um, like to think about is some of Emily Dickinson's poetry. Um, There's a, a, a famous poem of hers that... I can't quote completely from memory, but it begins with the phrase, the the line, I heard a fly buzz when I died. And the poem goes on in in her very economical language to take the point of view of a person who is awaiting burial, who is confronting a carrion fly that will soon, with its many companions, make short work of, of the body which, if you think about it, is a hugely disturbing and disgusting image, but it's a, such an economically tight and um, vivid poem that I think it's also a pretty good candidate for um, both what I venture to call the sublate and for also being beautiful. But I do think that when you come to beauty, we're talking about what some theorists call difficult beauty, not by any means that which is merely pretty or attractive or charming, but something that really taxes the audience. Um, And sometimes I think it still remains within the the zone of the beautiful. Other times it may depart from it and just be too tragic or grotesque to be still considered beautiful. But that, that doesn't mean that it loses its positive aesthetic character, because beauty, unless one expands it hugely, only encompasses um, a certain range of aesthetic positive, of aesthetically positive qualities, um, a very important range. And I do try to push discuss into that range um, in the final speculations of the book. Okay. Um, and I guess uh, finally, maybe we have another minute. Um, are there what, what particular works of art would you do you consider? Uh, sort of paradigmatic of the sorts of um, aesthetic experiences provided by disgust? Well, I don't know that I want to choose a paradigm because um, I, I think that there are so many different varieties of aesthetic disgust, which come to think of it as the title of a chapter, that it would be hard to single out paradigms among them. But Um, If we want to think of visual works, both um, filmic and uh, still paintings or or drawings, um, images of 
um, perhaps violated bodies would be an example. Now, they can be just horrific, but sometimes they're done in a way that's very compelling and, and moving. Um, in the case of narratives, I find myself especially uh, moved by the descriptions of war narratives, uh, of, again, the terrible atrocities that can occur in war, not necessarily through cruelty, but just through the, the, the awful things that occur in the course of wars. These are kinds of narratives where I think unless we confront the visceral power of those images, we, we lose something with regard to the meanings of the works. So those would be um, perhaps strong examples, if not complete paradigms. There are certain tragedies, including the, the classic uh, Greek tragedies, where highly disgusting images are part of the, um, the, the famous aspects of the narrative, such as Oedipus blinding himself um, and... Uh, other kinds of mutilations and tragedies. Uh, these are indispensable parts of the narratives, I believe, um, and therefore aspects of aesthetic disgust that we, we would not want to do away with. Um, they're difficult to encounter. We might find ourselves flinching um, and recoiling in that respect, but we wouldn't want to excise them from the works, I don't think, because the works would suffer as a result. They would become less meaningful, less deep, less profound, and less, in some ways, valuable. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. I've been talking with Carolyn Korsmeyer, professor of philosophy at the University at Buffalo, State University of New York, about her new book, Savoring Disgust, The Foul and the Fair in Aesthetics, just out from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.